Hello there. I'm so glad you could join us on Reading to Rootedness. It's <laughs> very classy. No, thank you. Um, hopefully, for you guys, it has not been that long since the last episode, but for us, it's been a long time since we have recorded an episode, so has. Uh, <clears throat> forgive us if we are rusty in our abilities to talk about important things, but guys, we are starting on the final part of our three-part series about love and JP2's understanding of love and the human person. It's time for the big one. <laughs> yes. Theology of the body. <laughs> as, as people say, this is his masterwork. I think the introduction, Waldstein says, says this is his masterwork, mm. which is saying something, of course, because mm-hmm. he wrote lots of incredible things the church will be reading for decades and millennia. So, uh, <laughs> I know. we've arrived. Kind of arrived. We, so yeah, we're, we're starting we're <laughs> with the introduction, <laughs> which I think we're even splitting up the introduction yeah. itself into two parts because there is a lot to cover in this. It's kind of funny because this first part overviews some of the philosophical thoughts and trends that that St. John Paul II is interacting with right. and, and thinking about as he's writing these things. And both of us were like, why did we not read these before we read the person and act, person and act? Because that would have been very helpful. Yeah, we, uh, we <laughs> jumped in. background. Wanting to jump in. Um, <clears throat> and certainly there's like, we could have read commentary and stuff mm-hmm. with person and act as well. Mm-hmm. So we kind of knew what we were doing there. But we're reading kind of anymore the definitive mm-hmm. version of the theology of the body, which is men and women, he created them a theology of the body. Uh, the blind press with the introduction by is it michael michael waldstein so yeah and this is probably the one if you were to google it you would find this copy yeah so that's what we're reading mm-hmm. and we can get into the number of audiences and things but just on that point john paul ii is very much coming out of his era you know speaking to his era responding to big thinkers of the day yeah i guess we can get into that more we will but just how much person and act love and responsibility and theology of the body aren't just you know they do not float on their own but they really are his response to certain things but also his recognition of the lack of certain things like an understanding of of human sexuality in a truly in a biblical and personal way so he's speaking to a situation in some way but it really is important to know because what is he learning his personalism from? What is he reacting his personalism to? And so on. And I, and I think it's really a testament to the fact that these three things are connected. They're building upon each other. So person and act, love and responsibility, theology of the body. Once again, I think even not knowing exactly what order to read them in, I think we chose the right order because this is kind of the fulfillment of all of that thinking and engagement with these philosophical trends of his of his day. A little bit of context too, I guess. Maybe we think of just the things we've read. He uh, was thinking about working with the university students, and 
love and responsibility was really a result of that <clears throat> work as a professor and a priest, um, which he then published as a bishop. I believe I remember reading that he had taken some of the original documents, his own writings of that that he uh, for for theology of the body to Vatican II. So he was already kind of working on this idea there. Person and act would come out of Vatican II, him recognizing that there needed to be more of the philosophical work of the person done that they're talking about and putting into the documents of Vatican II, but maybe the philosophical work in a truly Catholic context hadn't been done. So he does that. So person and act's almost kind of the third one. Uh, even though Theology of the Body would be published last, he was working on, it seems, Love and Responsibility, which is more the philosophical side. Theology of the Body, more the theological side. He was doing that of this, of human love. And then we find out in the introduction, which I did not know, that <laughs> he had written, men, or what was it? Uh, I think Man and Woman, He Created Them. It's a book he had written but not published as a bishop. Before he was Pope, which is mostly the theology of the body that he continued to work on, but it's mostly there in this unpublished work. So he'd kind of written it as a bishop still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so theology of the body, as it came to most people, was through his, is it Wednesday audiences? Mm -hmm. (laughs) During his papacy, um, he gave these as a series of you know, short little lectures to kind of the representatives of the world, you know, people that were present (laughs) at the Vatican at that particular time. But what this book is saying, what this introduction is saying, is that he was pulling all of that from material that he had already written. So it wasn't like he was, you know, brainstorming all of this as he was going on. He had most of this already in mm-hmm. a written format that he would then split up and kind of write some sort of intro to and and then present it to people. Yep. So, and it was really fascinating. This book is quite detailed and, and maybe you can understand why it's kind of the definitive edition in what exact audiences it chooses or doesn't choose to include because apparently there is some sort of disagreement about <laughs> I mean it's yeah. more complicated than I thought in that oh, yeah. you know a couple of 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 his lectures are included in the original material work but he didn't actually give them as a lecture or um there's a few of them that I don't know were they just shorter or did he not actually yeah I, so I don't know <laughs> in yeah and he he has multiple pages kind of explaining <laughs> yes. this but um <laughs> just about there the text. were so starting on september 5th 1979 he gave the first of these wednesday audiences detailing the theology of the body there would be 129 of them given mm. there were uh and over the span of five years because he took a break when he was shot understandably and then he took a break for a whole year and then we finished over five years later, on November 28th, 1984, giving them all. So the 129 given at a Wednesday audience, our book, this book, has 133. Mm-hmm. So different publications of this, which there have been multiple kind of up to this one, I, I feel like. Mm-hmm. I don't know if more came after this. This is kind of seems to be the one that has settled as accurate. But other ones, there's a few that 
a few audiences he didn't deliver, which are included in this 133. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of written but never given for some reason. And then I think the like, longer version of his explanation on Tobit and Song of Songs are included in here, which I think, if I remember right, are the, what he gave was a little bit shorter than what's written. Mm-hmm. So they kind of added some of the extra stuff he's written because he, he was trying to fit mm-hmm. his audience, you know, into 10 or 15 minute speeches. Right. And so some of that got kind of trimmed, which mm-hmm. then is, is here for us in the text. Mm-hmm. So this author is clearly relying on that written source as kind of the primary source for this work, even if what was in there didn't quite come out in a lecture itself. But the audiences are, I think, transcripts, though. Yes, yes. Like, we get exactly what he would have said. Mm. And I think he also makes the point how that's important because he kind of makes the argument, like, and people did argue, how authoritative is a Wednesday audience, you know, John Paul II is laying out this kind of new, kind of pushes some boundaries, theology of the body. Mm-hmm. Do Catholics have to follow it because it's like a Wednesday audience? Does that hold itself to the same rank of like an encyclical or an apostolic exhortation or a mm-hmm. solemn declaration of something? So he makes the case that, yes, um, this is catechetical teaching of the Pope, and thus it carries real weight. And then even like cites John Paul II's own documents on catechesis and how like this is a primary role of bishops to catechize, to lead people to Christ. And so and I think he's also mentioned he's speaking to people who've shown up in St. Peter's Square, mm-hmm. but he's speaking to the church because really that's a, probably a pretty good representation of the church. Right. Gathers from around the world. People of all races and ethnicities and levels of education and, and whatever. You get everybody showing up. So really he's he is catechizing the world mm-hmm. through these audiences, intending for them to be not just like listened to on the day and forgotten, but but taken up and lived and shared. Was that something new? Was the Wednesday audience traditionally not utilized for a purpose like this? In, like, a long lecture sort of series that all connects? I mean, do... I wouldn't... Does Pope Francis know. have <laughs> Wednesday series? audiences that he's kind of slowly releasing his teaching? Or <laughs> I would... My gut is to say no. Huh. I think the Wednesday audiences generally... And I don't know when they started, but kind of just to address the crowds and say something. So I think... Well, and he kind of speaks about the confusion that people had. You know, if you right. go, and you I can't imagine trying to follow this in the newspaper. The <laughs> picking up a point he's been working on for, you know, three months, mm-hmm. and just like delivering this high-level theology. Mm-hmm. I don't think John Paul II expected people to fully understand him mm-hmm. on the day in Rome or in the event St. Peter's Square because he really was laying out a teaching. He's <laughs> delivering parts of a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, over 129 sections. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know if it's a new thing or not, but it seems very clear that's very much what he intended to do, mm-hmm. is to have these all be connected. Okay, so that's a little bit about the text itself, how it came to be. 
So just a side note, which, you know, we can we can think about later. But All right. on page four of the text in the in the notes, it seems Oh, okay. It says the reason why John Paul II uses the phrase reflections on the theology of the body rather than simply theology of the body may lie in their incompleteness. These reflections do not include many problems that with regard to their object belong to the theology of the body, as for example, the problem of suffering and death. So important in the biblical message. Mm. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, even though human sexuality, love, relationship, that's such a fundamental part of understanding the reason for our bodily existence. There is maybe a missing part of this in death, and we should explore that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that should be a future series, Death. Totally should be. Okay. Anyway. Right. Right. Mm. Um, so I think we should spend maybe the rest of this kind of highlighting some of the philosophical trends and and um, yes. lines of thought that he is lines of reasoning maybe that he is engaging with and even if not explicitly addressing is kind of mulling over and thinking about as he's working through this series of books and and lectures and that kind of stuff yeah can i insert something no before that no dang it <laughs> Emily has spoken, so no. Oh, oh you know what we didn't do in the intro? We are what's that? we didn't say who we are. Oh, do we do that? We do that. Yeah, we do that. Man, Shoot. we are we are so rusty. Just in case you have not followed us thus far. <laughs> I'm Emily. Hi Emily. I'm Father Adam. <laughs> and we work together at a university yes. in campus ministry. <laughs> so that's part of why we want to do this. Yes. Okay, okay, now you may... Oh, thanks. Okay, good. Insert a small thought. An overthought. I like the... There's a preface to the introduction by Christopher West, (laughs) and he just makes a really initial good point that, why is it called the theology of the body? It seems kind of weird when theology is supposed to speak about God, but the body seems not God. Um... (laughs) Like, you know, true Catholic understanding. The incarnation happened, and thus the human body, the human person, is very much tied to God. God, created in his own image and likeness, took on flesh himself and lived this way and loved this way. And so the theology of the body is fitting and really important because of the incarnation, because we know of what God has done. And then maybe the other intro point that I that I like from George Weigel's Witness to Hope, mm-hmm. speaking about just a little bit of the papal context or the church context, speaking about love. So the first Wednesday audience here is in 1979, but the last kind of big thing that the Catholic Church had done to speak about love was in 1968 with Humanae Vitae, Pope Paul VI encyclical, the contraception encyclical, which said that that is not a fitting thing for true human love and kind of hit the world stage as just this rejection. I mean, yeah, as, as people do, don't necessarily read it, but just take away the point of Catholic Church is against these things. They don't, they don't want women to be free or don't understand human love or, or whatever, the challenges of things. So it's kind of a situation where the church doesn't have a lot of theology, doesn't have 
the greatest explanation to engage with the culture, especially the sexual revolution, which has just happened. So certainly John Paul II, or Kara Voitiwa, has been doing a lot of work on this. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways saw himself as chosen to be Pope at this time because he's done some of this work. And now he can bring that. Mm-hmm. Like The church has something to say about human love that is deeply rooted in revelation and mm-hmm. the truths of the human person that we find there and even in reason. And... Um, and also just the chaos that's happening through the sexual revolution, that he really sees it as the right time. The the church needs this. People need this deeper, profound understanding of what love is and the the human person is. And so he, I think, saw it really as a very important thing for him to do, Mm. to teach, catechize the ailing world about what, high level of love God has made us capable of, what we deserve, what we're made for, what we can accomplish in some way, in, mm. in love, to reveal, yeah, as, as Gideon says, Jesus Christ is the true one that reveals us to ourselves. And so how does Jesus, being incarnate and being the God who is love, reveal us to ourselves? And so we have this incredible... Mm gift to the church of theology of the body yeah it seems like maybe one of the points that i took away from reading all of the vatican ii documents was that the church shouldn't always be on the defensive about everything like we have something good to offer and should be on the offensive (laughs) yeah in 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 supplying that and in promoting that in proposing that and so this this really feels like yeah even though it is in reaction to a world that he's seeing this is i don't know kind of the the catholic answer perhaps or the the catholic understanding that is of human sexuality of the body that that is within itself beautiful and and necessary and you know looking at your own personal experience more true than some of the other things that are out there yeah i don't know but also yes we are we are not gnostics oh i'm learning a lot about gnosticism right now so (laughs) nope (laughs) yes okay now we can get back to what you wanted to get back to yes yeah sorry i just had to get that out stop delaying us all right so over here and then Wait, I was going to list the three things we're going to talk about. Okay, all right. A little bit of, a little bit of. I was, I was going to structuring. Are you going to do that? Give you a a challenge and ask. Okay, I'll speak and then you can. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, we're we're getting back into this. Um, (laughs) he's gonna, our introduction writer, Mm -hmm. Waldstein, he's gonna speak about John Paul II's uh, work with and love for John of the Cross, Mm -hmm. how that affected his personalism and theology, then. We're going to look at Kant, and then we're going to look at Shaler uh, as these big thinkers that Pope John Paul II is very much influenced by and also critiquing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. It's the layout for the rest of this episode. Yeah, so so what can you tell us about St. John of the Cross? St. John of the Cross is a <laughs> uh, Spanish mystic. So JP2 uh, encountered him, I think he said, the year... Before he entered seminary, 
through Jan Tiernowski, who's a great layman mystic who mentored in some way mm -hmm. John Paul II in the spiritual life. But he introduced him to John of the Cross, who JP2 would then go on to write his first dissertation over. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> it is cool. And the primary thing he focuses on, at least in the dissertation, is how faith and love are the place where they actually have contact with God, these primary and true places we have contact with God through faith, through love. So John Paul II even like learned Spanish to be able to read John of the Cross in his language. Like he fell in love with John of the Cross. Mm. And even just the excerpts they put in here, and you're like, yes, John of the Cross is <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it's kind of funny because some of the main points that St. John of the Cross is making that JP2 thought was revolutionary enough to kind of include in all of his future works, to me, don't seem that revolutionary or, or new, but perhaps it's just because I was educated in <laughs> post. a post... <laughs> Theology of the Body Yeah, post-JP2 era. era, yeah. Um, but that yeah. God wills human beings for their own sake, for their good, and then persons can only find themselves in the sincere gift of self. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know enough about really the history of Christian spirituality. And I know it's not like totally new with John of the Cross, but mm -hmm. he speaks very strongly, boldly maybe, about the gift that God gives of himself to mm -hmm. each human person. So as John Paul will take, you know, the sincere gift of self, you know, of, of man to wife and wife to man, uh, in marriage, but like certainly God is, is does it first and does it he actually gives himself, certainly to himself in the Trinity, but even to humans, mm -hmm. uh, to, to us, mm -hmm. which is really deep. That's profound. Right. I, I, I was just like, it's just funny. Like I don't know if it's funny. Maybe it's not funny. <laughs> like how struck I am. Just read the words of the gospel again, like, but in the context of what John of the Cross is saying. Quote from John seventeen ten, of all that is mine is yours and yours is mine and I am glorified in them. Like, God actually does that. Mm -hmm. like, all that is mine is yours. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Mm. Yeah, the necessity of God moving first, mm -hmm. because then when we do respond, what we are giving back is what God has given us, which seems the only appropriate or even something that could come close even to to being a reciprocal gift is what God gave us. <laughs> so, very much so, thinking about all the arguments between grace and works, like, <laughs> God is the first to move in this relationship. Yeah. And it's only by him moving and him giving us himself that we are able able to respond in any sort of meaningful way. But John of the Cross would say we can respond in a well, full way because by God's design, we can give the Holy Spirit back to God. Mm -hmm. So it's not 
just one way. It's not God who has, you know, full power and capacity to love that gives himself and then we kind of flounder. But in giving himself, he gives us the Holy Spirit, which we then can give back. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I don't fully understand. So it is, so he'd say like the, the love between God and the person is still like that fullness of love mm-hmm. because in some way God is getting back what he's worthy of because, you know, a human love, like we cannot love God as he deserves, mm-hmm. but the Holy Spirit can mm-hmm. and we're wrapped up in that. Right. So, and that's when it could be truly a, a, a marriage in, you know, in yeah. a sense that, yeah, we are giving of what he has given us and that makes it a worthy gift. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, his response to that is perfect as well. And so <laughs> it's just like a mutual giving. Yeah. Continuously. And that's like what we're made for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how much of that's going to come out in the theology of the body. The kind of God in us part. There yeah. might be a lot. Again, never read the whole thing. Um, but that's why we're here. Uh, <laughs> but I, that has to be you know, that first move mm-hmm. of anything a, a man and a wife do is in the context of what God makes possible between him and each of them. Mm-hmm. And then they imitate, hopefully, that which they have experienced with God with each other mm-hmm. in some way. Just having experienced the fullness of love been it's, it's a, yeah not not right but like in a way apprenticed to the master the love doesn't quite work that way but um <laughs> that like then you're much more capable of actually giving yourself totally mm-hmm. to spouse right because you you know what it means to give and receive another mm-hmm perfectly yeah it's kind of strange because you besides maybe women religious you don't hear the image of bride and bridegroom so much to describe our relationship with god more more than likely it's kind of like a father child sort of relationship as opposed to a marriage sort of image but but it is really cool to think about it in that way in what we are trying to what we desire, I think, in marriage is yeah. what we should also desire for our relationship with God. Kind of that closeness, yeah. that giving of yourself completely. Right. Um, totally. Right. <laughs> yeah. Another thing from John of the Cross that I found really profound. So he quotes from him here. When there is union of love, the image of the beloved is so sketched in the will and drawn so intimately and vividly that it is true to say that the beloved lives in the lover and the lover in the beloved. Love produces such likeness in this transformation of lovers that one can say each is the other and both are one. But he's speaking about God. Mm -hmm. He's not speaking about marriage yet. Mm -hmm. But you can see... That language, man, is 
in the theology of the body. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We, we, we can love as God loves us with each other. Also think of the, uh, the jeweler shop. Uh, mm. The weight of the rings is like the weight of the other person in you. Mm. Uh, it's too, but crazy. This is crazy. It's intense. <laughs> like, that truly, this could be said of us, and, and, and yeah, and, and it's true, of us and God. We truly become one through this union of wills. Yeah, that like the other person takes up space in your life so much so that like, it's impossible to pers- like think of like you without God. It'd be impossible to think of Emily without God. Like, that's how it ought to be. Mm-hmm. You cannot pull them apart. It's right. like a great married couple. You can't see really one apart from the other and, because they're... And there so should be so point. little distinction between their will and my will that you just you just act. You know, there's not that super long process of, like, willing this and then forcing yourself to do it and all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, it's 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 uh, the word himself that, like, he just, he is mm. what God wants. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so, right. but yeah, like, there would be so little distinction between the, the spousal relationship that, that you are what God wants. There is no distinction between the will and the act itself. Like, we are together. Yeah, that'd be really cool. <laughs> Goals for life, man. Goals, <laughs> Goals for life. <laughs> yeah. Okay, should we talk a little bit about the less maybe inspiring and more complicated <laughs> works of some philosophy here? Or are you going to hold us back again? Yeah. Um... Do you have more to say? <laughs> No, we can we can move. Okay. I think it says so. He gets kind of that from John of the Cross. We also mm-hmm. see, yeah, so the gift of self, yeah, and okay, maybe that's good enough in sense of what what he's drawing from John of the Cross that we'll see later on. Mm-hmm. The gift and kind of the, the union of it's possible. Okay, Emily. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. I should have not started. Yeah, Carol Vutiwa. I know. <laughs> Dialogues with Immanuel Kant. What <sighs> What ought we to take away from oh, this? Oh, man. He is hard. And I think it is helpful to start, as he does in this introduction, with Bacon and Francis Bacon and Rene... Rene Descartes. Rene. Rene. Yeah, Rene. Rene Descartes. And this move away from thinking about the material world as something that has an end in itself, um, has purpose outside of yourself, (laughs) and thinking of it as something to be conquered, something that you can only know if you have power or control over it. These are all moves that I think Kant is building upon when he starts. So Mm -hmm. he spends a little bit of time talking about that, and I don't know if we need to go... And too, too much detail about that. Is there anything you want to say about Descartes or <laughs> oh. Bacon? Yeah, just the detachment of kind of this d- strong divide between spiritual and right. material. Right. And, it's, it's and there's so many like other rift. philosophical things happening at the same time that kind of make the human person the center of the world. And even more so, kind of the your own little interior world 
as the standard upon which you should base everything else, which yeah. is really kind of the move that Kant is making. And it's interesting because Kant is like one of the ultimate personalists, right? And JP2 is also a personalist. Yes. But they are very different in how they go about this. And they are. Um, I think it's helpful to look at both of them to kind of see the way personalism does get a bad reputation and necessarily so, but that's not, you, you can focus on the person in a way that really understands who they are that is connected to God, which is something Kant is really not going to do. So I think Kant's general point is that um, any sort of theoretical pondering about God doesn't really get you anywhere. It doesn't prove anything. So really, the only reason to believe in God or say that you do is for the effects it has on your moral life. Mm -hmm. So God only exists as the reason for your ethical choices, perhaps. And there's no use trying to think about that any more than than just what sort of practical uses it has. <laughs> I don't know. Would that be a, a good summation of of this first part of Kant? <laughs> yeah. And that you kind of mentioned the split between nature and the person. So <laughs> For sure. Uh, yeah, and Kant calls for this, I think, like mastering of nature. So we can be truly free. So nature is not something that has like, yeah, like a final cause or some meaning in itself, like the nature of the body or what a human person is. Um, but we ought to just determine what our nature is, mm -hmm. which we could see runs contrary to Catholic thought. Uh, and uh, it gets really interesting when you can dominate your own nature right. in some way to be utterly free to just self-determine. Mm -hmm. Right, so he yeah. he uh, really holds in high esteem free will, mm -hmm. um, and therefore human dignity, because humans have right. the potential for free will. Right. But this is based upon the fact that free will is the thing in his mind that makes us able to dominate the nature or the chaos within us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's not because, yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, he would be in full support of <laughs> just getting rid of anything in you that is not chosen by you. <laughs> yeah. And so he'll also say is, is a moral point that because of this, he would probably, this kind of crazy dignity of the free human consciousness and will that you can never use another person as a means to the end which we can see is a good thing jp2 and catholic thought would agree mm -hmm. on that but also but you add like the domination of nature thing it gets kind of weird but he says some really interesting things about marriage then too yeah oh hang on uh, am i ahead of myself okay yeah okay yeah, yeah. so this is a point that schlayer Shaler Shaler is going to argue about a lot about. So he even considers you basing your 
your choices upon outside entities like objective standards of good and evil as not ideal. Like, you should be so in control of yourself and your part in the world that um, you should be so autonomous that you don't need any of those things (laughs) to make a decision. So, page 50... It says at the bottom, I am autonomous when I will what I will without being motivated by any good or evil. That is, when I move myself according to the categorical imperative. I fall into heteronomy? Heteronomy? Heteronomy. Heteronomy. When I will something because it is good. In heteronomy, I degrade my will and make it a servant of my irrational desires. I reach autonomy and freedom only when my will is completely independent from the whole sphere of appearances based on received sense data. For independence of the de- of the determining causes of the world of sense, and independence which reason must always claim for itself is freedom. Mm-hmm. So freedom is when you detach yourself completely, and the only thing that is um, determining the world around you and yourself is yourself. <laughs> yep, self-legislation. And it is actually a weaker will when you are motivated by your understanding of good or evil. Yeah. Yeah, so he's trying to get away from yeah. this, like, medieval <laughs> and even classical understanding that right. we are drawn by what makes us happy, and we're drawn by the good and mm-hmm. the true and the beautiful, and he would say, weak. Right, because right. if any of if any of those are, like, feelings that just pop up in you, then, no, you got to get rid of that because that's not you, so... You got to detach yourself from everything. And I just get this image of like a person floating in the dark in water, just completely alone. Yeah, that seems to be his goal. Like a person detached from everything. Yeah. Contemporary kind of theology in some ways refers Mm. to this as the uh, freedom of indifference. Yeah. Utterly, there's nothing drawing you to like any choice. Mm -hmm. Kant would make arguments for duty, that there are duties we have that really... Um, we should follow, but we are not drawn by our desires or to be drawn by our desires is, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay. But yes, he does say some interesting things on marriage. (laughs) And government, but we can go there, but we can see, and he points out some of the things that Cotton JP2 would agree on Mm -hmm. some things, but yeah, if you detach yourself from nature, like marriage gets weird because there is this bodily interaction of the, of Spouses, which mm-hmm. is connected to desire. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen that Kant thinks that's kind of... we, Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of weird. So, marriage. And he has a weird thought about kids, too. Like kids <laughs> are just like... Uh, granted, Kant probably says more about that than the introduction does. But Kant seems to ignore the fact that, like, human beings mm-hmm. reproduce mm-hmm. Um, and have children. Mm-hmm. Because, like... <laughs> doesn't seem to want to like acknowledge this like no you're totally free but like yeah you have this really strong desire to like get close to somebody and then have a family like mm-hmm. what's that about so so yeah yeah go ahead, go ahead. jp2 is definitely going to take away that sense of you being at the mercy of somebody else's pleasure yeah. is you being used yeah Right. And right. and Kant is going to say that's because, like, your sexual drive and your sexual desires are, like, all these base material things that are far below, yep. you know, the inner you. And so the only remedy to that of you being used by someone else is marriage, 
because then at least it's equal. <laughs> yeah, you can use the other person. Right. So <laughs> you will always use that person. That person will always use use you. So technically, you haven't really lost anything because yeah. you're back to zero sum game. <laughs> yeah. Sort of thing, uh, which is odd. But but yeah, I think you can. I mean, yeah, that already came up quite a bit in love and responsibility mm-hmm. of that idea that if if your sexuality is not given in a context that is truthful to what your body is saying, then you are being used and you are using somebody else. And marriage (laughs) is kind of that context (laughs) where that can happen truthfully. But yeah, it's, it's a very different sort of thing than than this kind of like despairing, like it's always going to be used. It's always going to be far anything other than that. So you might as well just get married (laughs) And that way, at least you... You have, yeah. The ability to use the other person. Contract. As they use you. Yeah. Yeah. Which just makes me a little bit, you know, curious. What would Kant say about children? Mm. This helpless person that demands a lot from you. Mm. I don't think you'd like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is a little bit disconnected from this point, but on page 58, I really, really like this quote. What we speak through the body in sexual union, whether we want it or not, is the gift of self and love. We cannot take away the spousal meaning of the body, though we can speak that meaning in a manner contrary to itself. That is, we can speak it in the form of a sexual lie. Mm-hmm. So, like, the body itself has a language of love, and you can misconstrue that message <laughs> in certain ways, but you can't take away what it what it's trying to say. Right. Um, but see here, yeah. JP2 is very much putting human nature back mm-hmm. with the person mm-hmm. because, well, you kind of have to, to make mm-hmm. the argument that like the body has a meaning mm-hmm. that's saying that like there's a nature that we have that, that points mm-hmm. in a certain direction. Yeah. So we we stand within nature we don't necessarily stand outside of it or even have the control to impose our own understanding of the world upon nature even if it's nature inside of us yeah Um, and i think generally mm -hmm. as you said earlier this is a proposition that to accept as gift our nature and what we are can lead to like true flourishing and Mm. great love yeah, so it's not just like a submission, like, well, okay, fine, I'm this thing, and now i got to, like, deal with the rules of this being this biped that's awkward, you mm-hmm. know? No, like, if you accept the gift is given and understand it and try to, like, live in court with it, great things, great things mm-hmm. can come. Okay. That's, that's so I, I really liked kind of the example he gave about how both the sexual revolution and Kant are doing something unfortunate by separating out the sexual nature of the human being as something kind of separate from the person. Because mm-hmm. um, Kant is just going to, like, you know, you should get rid of that. You could despise that part of yourself. Mm-hmm. You should just kind of detach yourself from it. Um, but the sexual revolution also detaches that sexual part from your person so much so yeah. that you can do whatever you want with it. Right. And that has no effect on yourself or, yeah, all or the pleasure. other person. Yeah. So, yeah, they're both making the mistake of not including 
not integrating (laughs) the sexuality of a person as within their personhood. So, right. So yeah, uh, he makes the point somewhere in here that like Kant is a personalist, but he doesn't take it far enough. (laughs) Yeah. Which is where JP two will come in. There is a nice summary. If you are ready to go on. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. To conclude, Kant's anti-Trinitarian personalism, which considers sonship the worst slavery and autonomy the only human dignity, exalts the unrelated self. Sex occurs beneath the level of personhood and threatens personal autonomy. Marriage does the best it can to restore the right one has to oneself. Um, John Paul II's Trinitarian personalism exalts the related self that finds itself in the gift of self. Sex does not occur beneath the level of personhood, but is itself an event of personal love, even when it is distorted by being pursued for the sake of mere enjoyment. The natural purpose of sex, children, does not lie outside that love, but qualifies it, essentially. So, there is a nice summary of the difference between Kant and JP2. Yep, yep. But finally, we have Shaler. Finally. And Shaler is probably the one that I had the most difficulty understanding. Probably because I just don't get feminology or whatever this Phenomenology. is. Phenomenology. 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 But Father Adam, please explain in intricate detail um, the full complexity of Shaler and JP2. Yes. Well, yeah, I In can two totally no, I'm just do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, briefly, and I, I don't think I've ever read any Shaler, but Shaler's going to see the need to have, like, human feelings and desires as a part of philosophical system that's going to speak about humanity. Uh, to cut that out is to really miss the mark. Uh, I think, and Shaler knows that. So I think I think Shaler, you know, is going to look at Kant and be like, well, that is not the general way humans experience the world. And it seems a little silly to kind of distrust something or detach yourself from something that is given. So he writes on page 65. This attitude I can only describe as a basic hostility toward or distrust of the given as such, a fear of the given as chaos, an anxiety, an attitude that can be expressed as that world there outside me, that nature there within me. Nature is what is to be formed, to be organized, to be controlled. It is the hostile, the chaos, etc. So, yeah, he's kind of like, uh, (laughs) you can't just, I don't know not want something just because you didn't get a choice in it, I guess. Or at least that doesn't follow with the average person's experience of the world. So you need to rethink yourself. I don't think he uh, liked Kant that much. No. Just based on (laughs) what I'm reading here. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Yeah, she was going to have a different, or personalism still, but a different personalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and even be open to looking at the gospel and Jesus and what we can do to imitate Christ. Though, I think JPT is certainly not going to agree with everything mm-hmm. that uh, Shayla has to say. 
but they get into moral goodness. But then you have, so phenomenology's general problem is it won't have a metaphysics still. So phenomenology is kind of like where you're going to agree and really not have an answer to the modern philosophy move of split between nature and spirit and like being able to grasp metaphysics. But we're going to like notice that there's phenomena that we can we can speak about. So Shaler still can't get down to what really Christ and the incarnation and like all that means. And he can't really get down to the nature of what it means to be a human person. Mm. But um, yeah, so the way I understand it, Shaler is critiquing Kant because he thinks the experiencing of values is so important to that ethical process. So you can't really get rid of those feelings of something as good or evil and then expect somebody to do the right thing completely outside of those. In fact, sometimes it's only through those feelings that we can assign a value to something. That we're then even, yeah, moved to perform a duty. Right. So... Kant was all about. Which I... Just having read Person and Act, I I think JB2 would agree with that. However, perhaps one of his critiques of Shaler is that, like, it seems everything... Then he doesn't assign any sort of responsibility to the person as a creator of goodness or evil. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Like, everything is... Let's see... Um, on page 71, since Shaler considers moral goodness only as he considers all value, namely as an object of feeling, he does not focus on the person as the efficient cause responsible for moral goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I don't know, he doesn't really focus so much on that can come from yourself, <laughs> that you acting contributes to the world that your actions also have values or act in accord with values or not accord. (laughs) Yeah. But then there are also other things that I don't understand (laughs) about how JP2 disagrees with Shaler. So again, not being able to like get down to real things, Shaler doesn't understand the final end. So you can speak about maybe feelings draw us to things, but ultimately, like, our, our draw of happiness does not lead us to God in a real way. There's not a connection with the real God. So part of what Waldstein's doing here is showing how there's, or at the time, a lot of Catholic thinkers were seeing Shaler as the Christian answer to Kant and some of the things, and so kind mm-hmm. of latching on to Shaler or JP2. Read a lot of Shaler. I think one of his dissertations was on Shaler, but very much concludes that this is not our guy. This is not the way out of the modern problem or reaction to Kant because of what you had mentioned and this like this kind of philosophy doesn't put us... Shaler's not understanding a real God. Right. He's understanding you know, maybe this. Right. It's flights still, of fancy for this highest thing. It but. still seems to be everything is experienced 
or anything that matters is experienced by the human person, not so much something like objective yeah, to connect right. it not to. connected to outside. And so it's yeah. still the human person is kind of the standard of everything. Even when you, you know, say those feelings, those things that are given are necessary, they're still coming through the human consciousness and not so much where they came from or <laughs> what within you or like who gave those things, you know? Yeah. And what kind of then responsibility to you do you have towards something yeah. outside of yourself? Yeah, it's not there. Or you know, your experience is not perhaps the <laughs> the correct understanding of the way the world works necessarily. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it still seems incomplete because the human person is disconnected, detached from like any sort of thread that makes the world understandable or not looking outside of yourself for some sort of authority or objective standard yeah. to understand anything. Right. All you've got is the kind of phenomena of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's only that's a, that's an attempt to understand this first part of the yeah. introduction and these <laughs> kind of you know, big thinkers that that we're not too familiar with, but JP two is very much familiar with and contending with. And so the, the second half of the introduction continues some of this work of what is JP2 responding to? How does he then design theology of the body mm. to answer some things that are going on in the day, theologically and philosophically, but also... What is the overall message of theology of the body? Mm -hmm. Before we dive into it. The text yeah. itself. <laughs> yeah. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Does that suffice for... Uh, <laughs> Forgetting the first episode. The first part yeah. of the introduction. <laughs> of theology of the body. I think so. I think we, we wrestled with some difficult thoughts here. And uh, I'm sure we will continue to do so as we go along. Uh, yeah. And I hope everybody listening will also take a chance and buy this lovely copy of Theology of the Body. And try to work through it with us as well. Because yeah. once again, we are not experts. Nope. <laughs> we are nope. trying our best to understand something that is written by a mind high above our <laughs> own. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but we think it, it is important and worthwhile because it roots us in a good understanding of the human person, of, of our bodies and our sexuality and, and why we were created. And all those things are important um, before you go out into the world, it seems. So, <laughs> starting here. <laughs> all right. Got it. <laughs> See you next time. Nailed it.